0: Hello, you're very welcome to episode six of The Week That Really Was with me, John McGurk, uh, as always joined by David Quinn, and this week by a guest um, who will be known to some of you, maybe not to others, it's Cormac Lucy, former advisor to Michael McDowell when he was Taunushtown, leader of the Progressive Democrats. And at the moment, an economics columnist with the Sunday Times, uh, Cormac, we're great to have you. But we're great to have you with us. But before we we get to talking to you, just to run through the listeners what to expect from the show this week. There's been one story in the news this week, folks. It's dominated everything else, and I'm not talking about the increase in the toll road prices. I am talking about, of course, the events in East Wall, where 300 migrants arrived unannounced, I think it's fair to say, this week to the ESB, uh, an abandoned ESB office in that part of of Dublin, sparking significant anger from within the community and protests that went on for most of the week. Um, The reaction to that has been divided. On the one hand, you've got the mainstream media, many politicians, um, including many from the opposition, telling the locals to go home and that they're being played by the so-called and alleged far right. On the other hand, the reaction online has been different and more mixed uh, with many people sympathising with the people uh, of East Wall and calling for a wider debate on the issue of immigration. Cormac, you're our guest. You're here with us. We're
1: delighted to have you. Where do you stand on this issue? I've been looking on with concern for many years. I'm, I'm just worried that the nature of our international treaty obligations on refugees constitutes uh, a blank check so 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 something that i think is good in theory and good in principle namely looking after refugees and affording them a safe refuge that has become uh i fear a part you know it it remains that it remains a vehicle to protect refugees but it's also becoming a uh, a tool for people to opt for, for migration to better off countries. And, you know, I, I can't blame these people. Uh, you know, I, I might be in the same position myself if I grew up in the badlands of Afghanistan or somewhere in Iran or even Albania. But the, the question isn't what do they do or what's in their interests? The question is what do we do and what's in our interests? And I'm, I'm worried that the concept of the nation is being eroded i think there's a large element of the, the policy making class that really sees the nation as old hat and uh, cliched and something really we'd, we we'd be better off moving away from in a new world where uh there's a greater focus on individual rights because i would see the nation as uh and and the state as vehicles for the assertion of rights for for Irish people but also as as vehicles for the uh the, the recognition of mutual obligations to one another so when we, we we allow in an awful lot of people uh a disproportionate number of them young men so if if, if this is a refugee crisis the the, the question that the those who rightly defend refugees need to answer is why are the demographics of those seeking refuge uh not proportional to the demographics of your regular populations but but if if they are as they are uh very often young men that puts big pressure on uh jobs it put, puts downward pressure on wages mm-hmm. it it reduces the uh material living standards of less well-off less well-educated people here in ireland irish people our fellow citizens to whom we have an obligation Uh, now it may mean that that when we uh decide at 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 half past six on an evening we couldn't be bothered uh cooking something for ourselves and and we want to order a takeaway that it's a lot easier to find uh, somebody to drive it to us uh but I, I think that on the jobs front, that's an issue. And then there's the other front, which is housing. And yeah. the last figure I saw for Ukrainian refugees was 62,000. Uh, they're coming in through a housing crisis in Ireland. Uh, the thing that struck me about this East wall story was the, the epicenter of the housing problem is in Dublin. <laughs> so mm-hmm. why, why are they being located where the epicenter of the problem is? Uh, why not move them to what was uh, rather laughably termed the Upper Shannon Basin? When a decade <laughs> ago we, we had we were talking about ghost estates and the need to bulldoze them. Uh, so so I'm I have the feeling that the policy making establishment uh, is not reacting in a coherent way to this. It it it's reacting. Different elements of it are reacting uh in an uncoordinated fashion from one another and if you have if you have a duty to house these people you just need to find them somewhere fast even if the place you find uh for them may not fit into wider housing policy The well, establishment, yep. yeah so, so i'm just concerned about this at, at a number of levels and and the, the, the thing that kind of bugs me most is i'm, I'm not sure i have a, a simple solution to fix the problem but i i'm i'm, I'm not happy with the way things are progressing
0: I was gonna say you said there something you said a couple of things that were interesting that I want to get David's thoughts on. Um the first thing you said I thought was interesting was about how how um this is seen as in terms of, you know, not be the, the nation state not being um perhaps as central and individual rights mattering and we being very obsessed with our international treaty obligations. And it strikes me that we're all we're not unique in that respect, but we're almost unique because if you look just Two countries over to the French, they're not that keen on their international treaty obligations. Their international treaty obligations, they get around, it seems to me, by sending a disproportionate number of people to wait at Calais um, and ignoring the fact that these people are leaving their shores in breach of several international conventions to come to both Ireland and the UK. Um, And the second thing you said to me was in terms of the response. And David, I wanted to come to you on this. It strikes me that the response from the political path to this issue is much more emotional than it is sort of logical that there was almost an offended reaction this week from the political class to the protests. A sort of like, do you not know the good that we're doing? Um, Does does it feel that way to you? It it almost felt that the government was angry that people would not see their good intentions here.
2: Um, I think... um that the response, and I use this term in the worst possible way, has been extremely moralistic, um, it's been extremely hectoring, it's been extremely finger-wagging. Yes, of course, there are genuine far-right elements trying to take advantage of, uh, of what's going on there. Um, but um, is this thing, and it's a kind of, uh, on the one hand, there's some little bit of an acknowledgement that maybe some of the residents have legitimate concerns, but they never quite address what those concerns are. And then they're back to the finger wagging. Mm-hmm. Um, that really they don't have legitimate concerns and they just simply shut up and and put up with it. In a way, by the way. The people in these middle class areas never would in a million years so i don't want to steal your points on this uh john because i know you were writing about that in this kind of vein during the week um so i think as on so many issues uh including as we've discussed before the response to COVID, the response is more moralistic and emotional than rational um somebody like rodrigo gorman or any of the other ministers say it's a moral duty well you know, a moral duty extends in all kinds of different directions and there's trade-offs to be made between the needs of various groups. And we go on like there's no trade-offs to be made. It's like with climate policy. We think You, you would think there's no trade-offs. It's simply a matter of we're going to have emissions by 2030 um and this doesn't involve trade-offs it's all going to be relatively easy and relatively painless or to listen to someone like Eamon ryan is going to be win-win and it's just not things are never that simple if i hear an interview about climate change and climate policy and i don't hear the interviewer talking about trade-offs it's just not a worthwhile interview similarly when it comes to immigration and refugee policy if they're not talking about trade-offs if they're pretending the morality all runs one way de facto towards open borders that is not a realistic Interview And it's also, by the way, that position, it's not moral ultimately, because you can't just say all the morality rests effectively towards open borders. And to pretend that there's no other moral considerations or rational considerations or policy considerations to be considered. And if you point this out, you're a deeply immoral person. Like if you question any aspect of COVID policy, you didn't care if granny died. If you question any aspect of seeking to have carbon emissions by 2030, they don't care if we burn up or whatever. So once again, it's argument by emotion, and argument by the worst kind of moralism.
1: Yeah. Uh, you, you... But I, I think I think if, if, if there is a finger-wagging response, uh, and there certainly is in this case, I think that is more evidence of weakness than strength. I, I think it's more evidence of defensiveness. I, I don't have a good argument to persuade you. I have a bad argument that can hector you. Uh, and it, 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 I'm not really speaking to those who oppose me. I'm speaking to those who support me. And it's it's a sort of a, it's an internal echo chamber debating approach that politically is uh, moronic, to be quite honest. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the, the, the French being much more overtly nationalistic in their response to this issue. But partly that is because the French political system has faced very significant internal political pressure uh, from Marine Le Pen and others, uh, and th- th- they know th- they know that they have. To, this is a trade-off, <laughs> David. Uh, you know that they know that they can't just write a blank internationalist check. That there will be a heavy national price to pay if they are put in that corner, and. I find it very interesting, uh, having worked with Michael McDoole, you know, we brought uh, in the citizenship referendum in 2005, and the the same forces that... Explain what that was
2: again, uh, Cornock.
1: Yeah, it was a referendum. So so prior to 2005, the Irish constitution had stated that you were entitled to Irish citizenship if you were born on the island of Ireland. And uh, word about this had got out, and there was quite a flow of women to Ireland in advanced stages of pregnancy, maybe eight, eight and a half months pregnant. Uh, This was causing problems in maternity hospitals. And a referendum was brought forward to take that automatic entitlement to citizenship as a result of just having been born here out of the constitution and to allow the electorate uh, determine the precise rules of who would and who wouldn't qualify for nationality and the forces that are lined up against the east wall residents the great and the good uh the the, the various uh charities uh political you know, nearly all of the political parties were; they were lined up against this. Uh, the left, in particular, uh, our current president was vitriolic in his opposition to it. And it actually, by racist. the way,
2: it was called racist. I assume,
1: wasn't it? Yeah. And but by the way, a friend, <laughs> somebody who's uh, followed a rather curious political path in in the meantime, John Waters wrote in the Irish Times that it would be defeated. By three to one and <laughs> it was passed by nearly four to one uh and it was passed on, a, on quite a high turnout so on the one occasion when irish citizens were directly asked a question pertaining to this broad policy area they opted for uh to to to, to rein in somewhat the the notion that there should just be an open door and uh, that there's some legal obligation on us uh, they voted to, to remove that particular legal obligation.
0: Well, that brings me to what, what I wanted to talk to you about since, since you're on the show, Cormac, because you have experience, as do I, much less successfully, with alternative <laughs> political movements. John, uh,
2: it, John, before you go there, uh, you better express your opinion about uh, the whole East Wall thing and some of the things you've been writing this week and gripped and shared them with the listeners.
0: Well, uh, something, something that you said there a few minutes ago, which I I think was relevant, was this idea of um, genuine concerns. Because it's all I've heard all week is that the locals have genuine concerns that are being exploited by the far right. Now, there are a couple of things I want to say here. First of all, the far right are apparently the most powerful group of people in Ireland. They're responsible for all of our problems. Anywhere there's something wrong, it's the far right active again. There's about 40 of them. There, there are so few of them, in fact, that you could actually, I won't on this program, but you could name you could name 20 of them probably, and cover most of the the size of that organization. Um, And and we're told that they're exploiting what's happening in the East Wall, but we're never told what they're exploiting. And it strikes me that there are a couple of points. The first is that, you know, we have um, a resource crisis, as Cormac has pointed out. We have a housing crisis. We don't have houses for our own people. And we're actually putting these people in a dilapidated, run-down, former ESB office building, um, which was not designed to take people. The area is not designed to cope with that number of people, because there aren't that many houses there. It's already short of of school places. It's short of doctors. And we know, because we've discussed it on this show and others in the past, David, that there is a policing crisis in the inner city and anti-social behavior. Which brings me on to the issue of crime, because this is another concern that simply isn't addressed. Uh, as Cormac said, 300 mainly young men. Now, I don't care what colour they are, what race they are, what country they're from. Young men with nothing to do, living in an office block, are statistically more predisposed towards criminality and antisocial behaviour than than almost any other socioeconomic group. And it's, it's a point I'd make is that it is not four or five months in this country since the great and the good were telling us basically that every young man um, is toxic and a threat to women. In the aftermath of the Ashley Murphy murder. And now the East Wall residents saying, hang on a moment, maybe this is a security concern here, are are somehow racist for for essentially believing what they were told on primetime about men just a few months ago. And my third point uh is that in terms of permanence and durability, because we're always told these things are permanent, it's a temporary contract, there are direct provision centers running on 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 um Temporary contracts in this country now for five or six years, um, and you know the universal social charge. I'd remind people was a temporary tax. So was the income tax. So those are legitimate concerns. And by the way, this idea that addre- uh, concerns might be addressed, nobody wants to address the concerns. What they want to do is have a meeting with people, get them to, uh, get them to essentially agree that they were bigoted in their initial objections, and then do the thing anyway. So, th- so I mean that's. The political process is failing people here dramatically, which is why, David, I wanted to talk to Cormac about mm. um, the political alternatives, because, <coughs> excuse me, I mean, I am a natural Fine Gael voter. That's what I am. I'm a natural blue shirt. I'm, I'm a bit of a West Brit. I'm fairly conservative in economic uh, policy. I'm a law and order guy. I, uh, I I favor controlled borders. I'm not anti, I'm skeptical of the European Union, but not opposed to it and i don't know how anybody like me could vote for finagael i don't know what the difference between them and the labour party is i don't see one i, I mean uh, leo varadkar is you know, is advan a batrick as far as i can see on most issues of any of any significance are basically uh, interchangeable um and i really don't know I, I don't think i'm alone i don't think i'm some kind of extremist i don't think that there's there's this massive um consensus in the country where that where 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 Binnegale is as far to the right as you can go on politics and policy, um, and and every, everything to its right is far right, which appears to be the the consensus at the moment. So Cormac, you, you've been in the political system. You were an advisor to a progressive Democrat minister, a, a guy, by the way, who's much more to the left on social issues than than David and I would be. But I mean, am I mad, um, or is, is 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 there just a massive gap for something new at the moment?
1: i think there is a potential gap there uh, i think that the central challenge is that the nature you're going to have to find being a td is not a terribly uh, attractive job uh, you know b- people outside politics may think it's it's terribly attractive and oh my god you get these pension entitlements and you get these expenses and th- there is no doubt you could go into the system with the object of milking it but it, it, it does not pay that well if if you are a capable individual capable mm-hmm. of, of, of generating a significantly bigger income secondly it is a highly precarious job so you may invest a whole load of time and energy you may not get elected you may invest a whole lot of time and energy and you may get elected and then get dumped out maybe there's going to be an election 18 months after you got in uh, look at the Northern Ireland Assembly members. They've just had their uh, th- th- their pay cut. Uh, so th- th- this makes politics, parliamentary politics, the re- mainly the realm of people who are quite well off because they can afford to surf over this uncertainty. Whereas if you were giving ev- everything up that you currently have and backing everything on a political career, uh, you're you're putting yourself in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. So, I I just think that if if you look if you looked at Finagle uh, the way I would look at a publicly quoted company, and if I was to ask myself, you know, who are the shareholders? Who who is the controlling shareholder? Uh, I think Finagle's effective control is quite dispersed, and. Rests primarily in its TDs and uh, maybe to a lesser degree its senators. And I think they are just their primary focus is on getting re-elected. They're really, they're not firm believers in a in a line of policy or in a philosophy of government. Their primary focus is on getting re-elected. And I think to far too great an extent, they think that short-term media handling and short-term spin contribute significantly to uh, electoral outcomes. And Fine Gael, particularly under Leo Varadkar, has just become uh, a loudmouth. It's always got something to say, but it's got bugger all to deliver. Uh, and there's no long-term coherence it's just a long series of clever sound bites. So it's you know it's like living on McDonald's chips for all <laughs> your entire life. Uh, for the first five minutes, it, it feels sort of almost nourishing, but it, it soon wears off. Uh, so I, I I think there may well be dissatisfaction, but I would not underestimate how entrenched uh, a position existing TDs may have. Uh, you know that th- they'll be have be they will know the voters personally in in many cases they may have done something arranged something for them uh, in terms of navigating their way through the labyrinth of government so a, a new party is going to find it very difficult to get up off the ground mm-hmm. a to agree uh, a platform b to get coherent people behind that and good people uh, who will are willing to take the risk of being elected <laughs> uh and then c making sure they don't sign up turkeys you know the, fir- the first deputy leader of the progressive democrats was it's one recruit from the finna parliamentary ranks one michael keating mm-hmm. uh, and and he turned out to be a turkey uh with with series of of, of problems so you know one of the difficulties of a new party is your your scope to exert quality control is 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 not as great as in an existing party but i I agree with you john i think there is a uh, a gap in the market i think there is an opportunity but are there uh, enough people willing to mobilize to uh, take a chance and see if that gap exists in terms of parliamentary seats?
0: Yeah, I, I agree with everything you've said there. I mean, I, I have some experience with um, in my my old Libertas days when we decided to try and run candidates of what it's like to try and set up a new political movement. And the challenges in terms of, I mean, I think most people don't realize that the the and it's almost a cliche, but I mean, it's it's true that a big part of your job as a TD is going to funerals and going to um, local events and buying tickets for local fundraisers. And you think you're going to get in there and, and change the world politically, but really what Irish voters want is is extreme localism. And our political system is great at catering to that. It's brilliant at it. If you want your roads fixed and your medical cards doled out, it's, it's the best political system in the world, but I don't think it's great for national policy. And you're also right, um, I regret to say, in what you said about quality control in a new organisation. Uh, you, your first The first meeting of a new political party Will get everybody from the guy who wants lower taxes to the guy who thinks that the state was founded illegitimately and uh, he alone is the rightful president. So there's, um, there's, mm-hmm. all kinds will show up and 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 all kinds in between. And it is, I think you're very, you're correct, very difficult. David, you, you're you're the one of us who, who's never been involved in setting up a new uh, political organization, <laughs> but uh, you, you still might have some thoughts on this i think uh, what what do you you know what do you think is is stopping people
2: um well all the things that you were both saying but there's another factor as well which is um state funding of the existing political parties i think any party that gets above two percent in the national election begins to get state funding and uh, they have closed off the possibility of a new pd party emerging and getting you know, a lot of funding from particular individuals. I think, what's the maximum you can give to a political party in a, in a year? It's a two and a half thousand or something like that. And um, it all has to be declared. So your list of donors goes, goes live. And this is another deterrent. Um, so it's another very formidable barrier to entry into politics for a new group setting up because it's so bloody hard to raise money with the restrictions that the present parties, which are cartel-like in their behaviour, have erected i mean this isn't to say it's obviously impossible because the i think the political tide is becoming more and more unpredictable i think um in the years to come um between um high levels of immigration i think that's adding a kind of unpredictable factor into irish politics increasingly although we've had it for a long time i think the war in ukraine And inflation is adding a second unpredictable factor. And obviously climate policy and climate change, which is undoubtedly real, is adding a further unpredictable uh, factor into it. And it's very hard to know where all this is going to go politically. But we see all these other countries in which, uh, you know, so-called populist parties have arisen. Um, And of course, what's capturing a lot of the populist mood here is Sinn Féin. And Sinn Féin is kind of broadly of the left. And it's probably stopping the rise of a Marine Le Pen-type party or a Georgia Maloney-type party or a Sweden Democrats or a Danish People's Party in this country. But I wonder if it can stop it forever. So if you had five to ten years of um, a Sinn Féin-dominated government, what then emerges afterwards? I think it's hard to say, but you couldn't rule out that a populist right party will emerge after we have a few years of of, of, it. um, a Sinn Fein led government. Well, the intro... I'm not
1: sure. I'm not sure we, we, we'd have to wait that long because, you know, Sinn Fein has a difficult choice to make. Uh, does it continue its current path, which is essentially it's going to be Fianna Fáil with a bit more edge? They're really following the tracks laid by Fianna Fáil and De Valera in the 1920s, and uh, th- they're shedding the the, the radicalism. That they had when they were completely beyond the pale politically down here and partly up north Uh, so you know if you had a party that said uh we're going to have a referendum on ending state funding of political parties they'd go crazy but that they would they would find that extremely difficult to fend off Uh, if the same group were to say we're going to have a referendum to have political pensions They'd go ballistic, uh, and but if you look at you know Trump's election in twenty sixteen, the Brexit vote in twenty sixteen, the Yellow Jackets in France, there's there's a significant cohort in a lot of modern Western societies that uh, feels alienated from 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 the great and the good and and the way they uh, they're managing things and feels that that they're being given a kind of a Uh, A Potemkin village say in what's happening, but not a real say. And uh, in our country, with referenda, I mean, we had a referendum on on the Lisbon Treaty, and that was disregarded. We were forced to run it again until we got our our homework done properly. Same with Uh, Nice. uh, Sorry, Nice. Uh, Nice and then Lisbon. Yeah. So, so, uh, I, I think the. Existing consensus is maybe considerably more fragile than uh, people may think, uh, and I think the defensiveness that it often that the establishment often uh, exhibits uh, is partly testimony to that that they may suspect that themselves. Well, I see. I if thought,
0: you sorry, John, go well, on. I, thought, I say I thought Peter Casey was a bit of a canary in the coal mine on this one because I mean, all, all, all no disrespect to the man if you're listening, Peter, but like I think I think. It's fair to say he was not the strongest candidate in terms of presentation or campaign skills or being polished around the edges to run a national campaign. And the remarks that he made about Travellers were were not remarks, I think it's fair to say, that any of the three of us in this podcast would be comfortable making. Um, they were, to my mind at least, a little bit over the top. And yet, despite that, Mann won a fifth of the national vote in a national election. Um, spending I think he very, won a quarter. I think he got 25%. Maybe he between mm. a fifth and a quarter, any, mm, certainly, mm, certainly, mm. certainly, which I think is is evidence that there is an appetite out there for not not anti-travel. It wasn't that it wasn't people were voting for anti-traveler sentiment, even though some of the great and the good might like to pretend that's what it was. It was very much a sort of a two fingers to your pole faced denunciations of the man vote um, was my sentiment, <sighs> um, and 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 I think there's there's a big appetite out there. For somebody to to shake the system up, but I want to ask Cormac if I might, just because I thought you made a very interesting point, David, about the political the state funding of political parties. Because I've long had this theory that nothing has pushed pushed Irish politics further to the left than the state funding of political parties, because it has broken the connection between the parties of the centre right and the people who used to be their their support base. Finnigail. Pinafore no longer need to care, particularly what the business community, what the petty bourgeoisie for want of a better word, think, because they no longer rely on them for funding. It's all handed over from the same source of funding the funds of the National Women's Council of Ireland and Pave Point and all the other organizations. And essentially now you have one big state funded blob. Some of them run for election and some of them organize themselves into NGOs and charities. Um, and I think that, that business of, of the state funding of political parties has done more than anything else to break the link between the politics and at least on the centre-right and the people who um used to be the support base of those parties am i am i off on one there cormac or do i have a
1: point do you think oh no i think you you have a point Uh, i think there are other factors behind it i think uh our membership of the european union and the ever deeper connections we have with europe are also playing a role uh There was a lady who wrote for the Economist magazine. Was it Frances Cairncross? And she wrote a book twenty or thirty years ago called "The Death of Distance." And one of the things, and, and what she meant was, the arrival of modern communications technology would mean that we would no longer be forced to communicate only with those living in our geographic vicinity. We could communicate with people thousands of miles away. And that has led to people congealing around interests. You know, I'm not sure whether the the power of the LGBT plus lobby would be nearly as great today if, if it were not for the change in communications. So that now you've got, you know, if, if you have a very narrow interest, if you're into uh, model railways, you know you, you can now get together globally in a way you could never do before mm-hmm. and we're seeing this at a political level then when the political class it's now more oriented towards europe than it is towards its own uh, constituencies and it is uh, you know it, it 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 sees ireland on the, the trajectory of ever closer union and therefore anything domestically which cuts across what is being attempted in Europe is a bad thing and uh i think this is another issue and this and then if you if you look at who who's pushing back against that now I, i'm not a fan of victor orban but but he is he's blaspheming against this uh belief of ever closer union he is rearticulating the uh the foundations of a nation state uh and and you know that may not stand, <laughs> uh, and and it, the polls are are doing that in a, in a in a more genteel way. That may not stand either. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think uh, the EU is another very big factor in all of this, John. I'd agree. I'd agree with you on that. Uh, uh, you know, and
0: yeah, it's 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 it's. Uh, I mean, you look now, and, and I've always thought uh, Irish neutrality, for example, was. Um, well, I'll say it. I've always thought Irish neutrality to be basically immoral. That's always been my personal view of it. But it has always been the majority view of the electorate in this country that neutral we are and neutral we shall remain. And it has been fascinating in the last few months since the outbreak of the war in Ukraine to watch uh, a push to abolish neutrality like I have never seen before and has never been seen before in this country. Even during the Second World War, we didn't have anything like the the current... Um, and it is an establishment push to uh, to redefine what neutrality means and 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 for all intents and purposes abolish it, and I'm not sure there's anything like I'm in favour of it. I'm not sure there's anything like majority support for that position, and yet it just doesn't seem to matter anymore because the the as you say, it is that we should be more aligned constantly with what our our European allies are doing, and more than that, this sense of being on the right side of history now dominates our politics uh, in a way that. I, I i don't think was ever true before i don't think politicians previously had a sense that everything they did um would be judged by the arc of history bending towards justice as apparent as, as, as we the to arc pretend
2: well. uh, the, uh, the judgment of history john is such a rhetorical sleight of hand what it basically oh, I, means is do you know no, no i know you know this it basically means the opinion of future liberals that's what it means yeah, uh, I mean, history is a complete abstraction as a concept. So the judgment of history, no, it's Dermot Ferreter in the year 2100. That's what that means. And um, a 2100 version of Internet, material, that's what the judgment of history means. It's such a load of total and utter baloney. And it should be d- just dismissed as a piece of metaphysics when they come up with a statement <laughs> like that. And, and by the way, like in the subject of neutrality, um, uh, that uh, it was a poll in the Irish Times a few months ago over 60% think we should retain our neutral status. Now, whatever you may think about our neutrality, people should be properly consulted about it. And we're not being properly consulted. It's been salami sliced away. And the this, and this same sort of polls, there was a Sunday Times one, and there was a more recent Irish Times one, both said that over between 60% and 65% of people want some kind of a cap on the number of Ukrainians coming into the country, completely and utterly ignored, and I think particularly on the second point, you can't do that ultimately without some kind of electoral consequence. Um, but they press on because of NGO world, because of our again cartel-like ideologically media and the cartel-like nature of our politics.
1: Well, it also, they, they also they will also have uh, elements of the uh, the permanent state on their side. So. You know, there'll be various EU military missions and EU military this and military that that, and Irish people get on onto these activities and they then come back feeling, well, we need to do our bit for the greater European cause, Uh, be they military people, be they civil servants. And uh, you have got people inside the state pushing in this direction alongside Uh, elected officials uh, who who are nominally their masters.
0: I was actually going to ask you about that, Cormac, because we are pushing up on time, but it's the last thing I I wanted to bring up with you um, because you, you, unlike David and I, have experience working inside the state as as an advisor to a cabinet minister, which is, is it just me or is that permanent state more ideological than it used to be? Because I I talked to... um, to politicians all the time and I talk to, to, to members of, of, of the governing party not in cabinet but who, who say to me that you know they don't know where a lot of these policies are coming from and that you have ministers going into departments um as sort of moderates and within a week they're coming out with policies that are radically liberal and their sense is that we have a generation of ministers who simply don't have any kind of ideological grounding themselves. We're being pushed around by a civil service that's increasingly full of graduates from UCD and Trinity who are steeped in um, progressive ideology and who are the ones really running the country. Sir, Sir Humphrey Appleby went woke. Yeah, basically, you said it shorter than me, David. Uh, is, <laughs> is, there, is there any sense of that, Cormac? Again, like, yeah, I, do you I, have any I'd to... Say,
1: I'd say there's a lot to that, but but really, uh, it comes down to. A minister giving direction and the minister saying i'm not happy with this here is the outline of what i want you to do for me come back in a week and show me what what the plans are and you know, one of the things that strikes me is how very few public servants are removed from office hmm. uh, now i've worked in in industry and a lot of people get removed from office they lose their jobs, uh, n- not because there's a sort of a, a general cutbacks. It's because you're not up to it or y- you want to take us in a direction we've decided we're not going in. And uh, I think there there is. And, and by the way, Mary Harney had a falling out with one of her secretary generals of the Department of Health, and he was moved on in mm-hmm. pretty abrupt circumstances. So I think there. There's a bunch of student union type politicians who know nothing more than uh, putting up posters, asking people to vote for them, and making vacant speeches, who have, who have moved through Young Finneguy and Ografina Foyle and all the rest of them. And the, the, the notion that they might have to manage a large organization, that they might have to motivate people, that they might encounter people who are pushing against what they want and might have to deal with them, uh, That that's just alien territory to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and hang on, I've, I've got to get a new press release out. That, that's, they're really just, and, and this this kind of emphasis in the, in the media on, oh, so-and-so made a great hire, they hired so-and-so as their press advisor, who gives a monkey's about the press advisor, that they are almost utterly irrelevant. It's the Secretary General the assistant secretaries they're the key personnel appointments but we're we're living in this sort of uh self-referential echo chamber of the of the empty minded well and a further a further symptom of the cartel like behavior is because
2: like, as you mentioned the journalists um t- to what extent do journalists really want to um alienate uh, particular politicians who they might in the future become a a, a media advisor to because we see this happening quite a lot. And if you've got, if you seriously cheesed off the health minister or the justice minister or whatever, a press conferences, he or she is going to say, never employing you. And the journalists are thinking, I probably want to get out of journalism eventually. I wouldn't mind getting one of those uh, gigs. And so they don't have really an incentive to go after them, except on very you know narrow things like cost overruns or rule breaking, that kind of thing. But they do like to have their good relationships, apart from wanting to get kind of um, information leaked to them for decent stories, also because this might be their future employer. And I believe that is a really dampening effect upon press criticism of some of these ministers.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, we, we basically live in a world now where journal, I mean, journalism is not a permanent career anymore. It's not a trade. It used to be a trade. Whereas now, if you're still in journalism by 40, you're doing something wrong. You should be working for an NGO. You should be working for a minister. And it's the most talented journalist. Or a PR really, company. Or PR company. people like Fia Kelly from the Irish Times, who is a, a, a brilliant journalist who now works for for Helen McIntyre. a... He's a loss to uh, to the Irish Times. I'm not like con-
2: Susan Mitchell, a big loss to the Sunday Business Post as a health correspondent. She was a great health, health correspondent. Yeah, uh, She's now
0: off working for Stephen Donnelly. And I'm not. I'm not convinced that either of those two very fine people are massive additions to either Stephen Donnelly or Helen McEntee, judging by their records in office. But um, but, but they they
2: But they were good. But but they were very useful in journalism.
0: That's. Exactly, we're at it. Anyway, mm. gentlemen, uh, we have come to the end of our time this week. I think we could probably talk for another hour, but probably people are coming to the end of their run or whatever it is people do listening to podcasts. I, I don't really understand what you're doing when you're listening to us. <laughs> maybe you're running, maybe you're on the treadmill, maybe you're just listening to us for fun. Either way, we appreciate it. Um, we're we're delighted that you are listening to us. As ever, if you find this conversation valuable, please do send it on to friends and family um, and let them know that McGurk and Quinn and guests aren't the fire-breathing fascists that we're sometimes painted as being. Um, In any case, folks, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week to once again talk through the week that really was.